Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 23. And as you're turning there, I really want to just remind you where we've been. We've got a lot of text to cover this morning, so I really want to jump right in. But we've been in this series in the book of Acts called Taking the Stand, and we've been kind of mapping our way through the final phase of the Apostle Paul's ministry where he is given the privilege and the opportunity to literally, quite literally, take the stand for Jesus and to declare his allegiance to Jesus and to proclaim the hope of Jesus, not only to the Jews, but in the most powerful city on earth, the city of Rome. That's where he's headed right now. And so we were really looking at the life and ministry of Paul and wanting to model the same things that he models for us. We want to embrace the same concept that we too are called to take the stand for Jesus. So just a real quick refreshment as we started the series, here's what we looked at. We talked about taking the stand for Jesus requiring unwavering courage, requiring unwavering character, And last week, we saw that it took unwavering confidence, and and all those things are things that really, in a sense, we are called to model and embody as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. They're things that he really teaches us about what it means to truly take the stand for Christ. But this morning, rather than more of an active sense of what we're called to do, I want to remind you of the more passive uh, truth that should Fill your heart with great joy and encouragement this morning, and that's simply this, that as we take the stand for Jesus, as we are called to do, we do so knowing the unwavering comfort of God. And that's essential for us as we continue to stand for Jesus Christ, because we know, as we've seen in the life of Paul, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that it's not always easy to take the stand for Jesus. You know that it can often come at quite a cost, Life doesn't always go the way we planned, and taking the stand for Jesus doesn't always go the way we hope. Standing for Jesus and living this Christian life can often feel lonely. We can often feel quite confused. Things can feel quite chaotic, and many times, because we have chosen to take the stand for Jesus Christ, oftentimes we are confronted with the reality of our own weakness, our own frailty, We see ourselves falling, stumbling, tripping over sin, even as we attempt to take the stand for Jesus. That's why one of the most energizing and motivating realities in the Christian life is this, that I can know for sure the unwavering comfort of God. I can be assured that God's comfort is ready for me in my time of need. Paul is on the verge of being tortured by the Roman officials. They're trying to extract more information from him. They can't figure out why the Jews want him dead, why this riot has ensued. They're confused. He's told them he's a Roman citizen, so rather than beat him, they're going to hand him now back over to the leading Jews, the Sanhedrin, a a group of 70 Jews who run the established religion for Israel. This backdrop provides the context for Paul knowing the unwavering comfort of God, and I trust that your heart's going to be encouraged with the same truth this morning, that you too can know the unwavering comfort of God, and we desperately need that so very often. So look with me, beginning at verse 1. Let's read the first five verses together. It says this, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest 
Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. I want to encourage your heart this morning as as we look at Paul and we see the way that God is working in his life and ministry. Listen, that I can know the unwavering comfort of God. Listen, even, even when sin hounds me. Even when sin continues to plague me, it continues to infiltrate my life, my thoughts, my actions, my behavior. Here we see an example of Paul actually falling, Paul stumbling, Paul sinning, so to speak. Here's the man who's called to speak for God, the man who's called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, a man who's given a platform to speak to the rulers of Israel and the rulers of the known world in Rome, and yet we see him tripping and falling flat on his face, and it needs to be a powerful reminder for us this morning. So let's just learn from Paul. Paul, I love Paul. He's never one to be intimidated, that's for sure. Paul, again, the context is he's been handed over to the Sanhedrin, the ruling 70 elders of the nation of Israel. It's made up of a group of of typically Pharisees, these sects of, of of Jews, Pharisees and Sadducees. And as we'll see, they have some competing doctrinal convictions. It's predominantly made up of the Pharisees. They're the ones who really make up the majority in this group. They've got the majority of the power. Paul is standing there, verse 1 tells us that he looks intently at the council. Again, there's this sense of courage when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. He's so willing to stand for Jesus Christ. He's not intimidated. He's not going to be bullied or pushed around. And he says to them, brothers, you can just get the context for a minute. Paul grew up as a Pharisee himself. He says this about his own life. He studied under the the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, the the top of the top Pharisees. Many of these individuals who are probably surrounding him in this very moment are people that he knew very well, people who saw him in his previous life, maybe some former colleagues and, and former friends even that he went through school with. These are the people who are standing in front of Paul. Maybe if he had pursued this path of Pharisaical Judaism, he would have been right there with them. Instead, he was confronted by God, as he reminded us last week, and God moved him onto the path of following Jesus Christ, the path that he longs these Jews to know and to experience themselves. He looks intently at these brothers, and I think that sense of confidence and courage, listen, it speaks not of his own self-motivated courage. I think it speaks more of his conscious integrity. Knowledge, as he goes on to say, that his conscience is clear. He's very conscious of his own character and his own integrity and how he's handled himself and how he's lived his life. He knows that he's done no wrong as he looks at this group that's trying to intimidate him, this group that has just been responsible for beating and abusing him. God had sent him, and he knew that God was with him, and so he looks with this confidence, experiencing the comfort and care of God in front of a a vicious and angry group of leaders who had really a degree of power to be able to punish him. 
He says brethren, and maybe that began to incite some of them. In other words, he kind of looks at them and he speaks to them as equals. The implication here is that he is acting in obedience to God and that they have been acting in rebellion to God. That's what Paul means when he says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. In other words, I I know, brothers, I've been following God, I've submitted to God, I've understood God's will, and my conscience is clear that I am following Him faithfully, the implication being for them uh, that they are not. Now, this is really a staggering statement when you consider it for a moment, that Paul can say these words, that he's lived his life before God with a good conscience up to this day. Think about what that might entail. And this is the same guy who persecuted the church. This is the same guy who was looking to kill Christians and arrest them. You can say, how How did he live his life before God with a good conscience then? Uh, Here's the simple answer, because what he did then, he believed he was truly doing for God. But the fact that he can say this, what an incredible statement, this good conscience before God. It's a powerful reminder that Paul appeals to his own integrity and character to bolster his testimony, and it needs to remind us, listen, as Christians, that moral blamelessness, that a good conscience, that holy living is a powerful part of our Christian witness, increasingly more so in the face of our morally bankrupt and irreligious culture. Really, this kind of moral blamelessness that Paul is speaking of, it's always been a part of the good, a good Christian testimony. It's always been that way. That's the way God has designed it, for us to shine brightly for Him. It requires for us to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, and Paul's not saying that he lived perfectly, that he made no mistakes, What he's saying is simply this, that he has felt no guilt for anything that he has done up to this point. Like he's lived his life before God with a clear conscience. As far as he could tell, he's lived to honor God in all things. And that's an incredible statement. And I hope that you can think about that as it pertains to your own life even this morning. You know, conscience is an interesting thing. And the New Testament in particular speaks so much of the concept of the the conscience A lot of people appeal to conscience. You know, God has given the gift of conscience both to believers and unbelievers. It's appealed to, uh, Paul does in Romans 1 and 2, he appeals the concept of conscience that God has made known to humanity. It's in the fabric of their being, the sense of moral right and wrong. But conscience, listen, does not determine whether actions are morally right or wrong. That's so important to understand. Our conscience does not determine whether or not our our actions are morally right and wrong. Here's a good definition of conscience if you want one. A conscience is your awareness or sense of what you believe is right or wrong. It's the awareness or sense of what you have come to believe is right or wrong. As I said, conscience really is a precious gift from God, and it's a gift that's intended to increase your joy, especially as you follow God. The Bible, again, the New Testament is so much about it. Let me just give you a real quick survey of what the New Testament says. And again, this is going to be a limited survey, but it should give you a sense of wanting maybe to look into this yourself a little more. Here's what can happen with a conscience. It can be damaged, it can be dysfunctional, and it can even be destroyed. It can be weak, it can be wounded, it can be defiled, it can be evil, and it can be seared. In other words, it can be so covered by scar tissue from habitual sin that it no longer responds to the proddings of divine truth any longer. 
But the Bible, when it speaks of the conscience, especially in the Christian life, here's what it commends for us. It commends what Paul models for us here, a good conscience, a blameless conscience, and a clear conscience. I think we all know what it's like to have a guilty conscience. And it's interesting as we look at these verses right before us, verses 2 through 5, it's so interesting that these events follow so quickly after Paul's comment on him having a good conscience because it almost brings that concept of having a good conscience into question. Look at verse 2. Look what it says. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. They're so riled up by what Paul has said about having a good conscience. And again, think of the implications. I'm the one who is standing in a right place before God. You, by implication, are not. This high priest, Ananias, who, by the way, is one of the most vicious high priests who was ever recorded. Josephus says that he is a vile, he is a wretched high priest. He commands those who are standing right around Paul to strike him on the mouth for his comments. And, and by the way, that this word strike is, is not like he, you know, he said just pulled out his little white glove and gave him a little slap across the face. The implication is that this is a strong hit to the mouth. Like he punches him as hard as he can right in the mouth, trying to teach him a lesson. We're not going to put up with this, Paul. We're not going to put up with your holier-than-thou kind of talk. How dare you come and speak to us this way? And Paul, it's so fascinating what happens here. Remember, he's this guy who's lived all this time before God with a clear conscience. All of a sudden, he's punched in the face. And Paul reacts. Look at this. In his flesh, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Like Paul could throw some pretty mean insults, right? Like, like they would paint the outside of tombs in those days. They, they would make the tombs look pretty by painting them white on the outside. You know, this veneer uh, of, of beauty on the outside. But the reality, we know this, the reality is inside those tombs, they were filled with dead man's bones. This is the very same kind of rebuke that Jesus gave to the Pharisees, right? You, you, you filthy hypocrites. Well, this is Paul, but what you need to see is the speed at which he reacts. He shoots out this insult. He lashes out with his tongue, and he cuts them deep, deep, and then he hits them with the hypocrisy of the actions. By the way, what Paul says here is absolutely 100% true, okay? It is absolutely true. The hypocrisy is astounding, and Paul points it out. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Right, the law mandated that you couldn't strike somebody without cause. What they've just done is absolutely illegal according to the very law they're claiming to follow in questioning Paul. Paul is stunned by the illegality and the hypocrisy of these Jews. Now, now you watch Paul's actions here, and there's so often so much to model in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. And, and I think, you know, the, the Word of God paints even the saints of God uh, w- with the brush of ordinary, ad- uh, ordinary individuals. These are just men who God greatly used, but they, you know, as, as the saying goes, the best of men are men at best. You say, how does this line up with what Scripture calls us to do when we're reviled? I mean, just think about what Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12. It's right on the screen behind me. He says, and we labor, working with our own hands. Look at this. This is what Paul said. When reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. 
Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, verse, I gave you the wrong verse there, sorry about that. Um, Let me read it for you. It says this, when he was reviled, that's the wrong verse, (laughs) that's my fault. Uh, when, when he was reviled, listen to this, he did, he's speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting him, himself to him who judges justly. So how, how does Paul model what Jesus models and what Jesus commands his followers to do? And the simple answer is he's not. He's just not. Paul's error is actually pointed out to him Very quickly, look at verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Paul quotes the scriptures, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I mean, Paul quotes the scriptures to show, look, I believe what the scriptures say, I want to follow the scriptures, the scriptures are the rule and guide for how I live my life, and I understand what the scriptures say, and you have to see what Paul's saying here, Paul is acknowledging fault here. Paul is recognizing that he was the one who has sinned, and so he really quickly tries to remedy the situation because of his own sin. This is such a powerful reminder, listen, that even the most mature Christians can very quickly be overcome with sin. I I mean, you, you need to embrace this in the Christian life. You can be the most mature follower of Jesus Christ, and in an instant, you can be pushed to the brink, right? And by the way, yes, Paul is emotionally, you think about the, way, the reasons even the most mature Christians trip up in their life, and it's probably true of you as well. You're more susceptible when you're tired, when you're in pain, when you're hungry, when you've not been treated properly. And by the way, all of these things characterize what Paul has been going through. This has been his life, right? He's been beat up, he's bruised, he's bloody, he's been wrongly in prison. He's been unjustly treated. He's just been unjustly struck in the mouth. Which one of us wouldn't lash out in a fit of rage? It's a great reminder, listen, that we can so quickly be overcome with sin. The flesh is strong. But here's the issue, listen, when we are tripped up by sin, let me ask you, when you're tripped up by sin, how quickly does it derail you? I, I think, you know, oftentimes in our immaturity in the Lord, what happens is, is when we wrestle with sin, you know, when we've fallen again, you know, when we've done something we know, we've said we've never, we'd never do again, or we've been trying to work on, and then that moment we, we trip, we stumble, we fall flat on our face, we're humiliated and embarrassed, how, how often does that maybe cause you to just continue to spiral out of control? Well, I, I messed up this one time, I, I might as well keep going. How many times have you seen arguments get out of control like that? How quickly can you be discouraged because of your own sin? I know that some of you wrestle with this in this room. You're so filled with guilt when you mess up, when you fall flat on your face. And then, by the way, that's just what Satan wants. Satan wants to derail you when you stumble and trip and fall. You, you know, he wants you to, to hear the words, you're never going to be victorious over this sin. You're never going to be good enough. You're never, ever going to be rid of this problem in your life. You can't be useful to God. You should be ashamed of yourself. But look, how Paul handles this is so key for experiencing God's unwavering comfort. And it really, it really describes for us what it looks like for a maturing Christian 
to do when they're confronted with the reality of their own sin. Paul models for us so, so perfectly how you handle your own sin, how you handle your own falls and failures. Even when sin hounds us, I think of Paul in Romans 7, that continuing battle with sin, and it always will until the day we die and look Jesus in the face, by the way. The greatest source of comfort comes from the knowledge of God's full and free forgiveness. The the greatest comfort we can experience in the face of our sin is the knowledge of God's full and free forgiveness, that He pardons us, that He takes our transgressions and He removes them as far as the east is from the west. You know, a, a clear and cleansed conscience is essential to experiencing the comforting presence of God in our regular daily lives. Again, Paul's not saying, I've never sinned, I've never fallen, I've never failed. Here's a perfect example of him doing just that. But the reason he can say, I have a good conscience before God, is because the way he deals with sin is the biblical way to deal with sin. The way he thinks about his own failures is the biblical way to think about your own failures. This kind of a a clear, good conscience before God comes first, listen, from the forgiveness of sin that we receive at the moment of salvation. I want you to hear the words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 14. Just listen to this. How much more, it's on the screen behind me if you want to read along, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, listen to these words, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Paul knew instantly he could be in right standing with God because his merit and his standing before God was never based upon his own achievements. It was all because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 22 says this, and let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts. I love this, this Old Testament illusion, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, the reason, the reason I can have a good conscience before God is because my conscience has been sprinkled clean from the evil desires that once ruled it. You know, forgiveness cannot be experienced without repentance in our lives. You can't have this kind of a good conscience, and, and God doesn't want you to have a clear conscience if you're not living a life of continual repentance, and that's what Paul teaches us here. Paul shows us that repentance is necessary for that continual experience and knowledge of a clear conscience, that, that not the objective, the positional clear conscience before God because you've been cleansed, but I mean the subjective, the, the feeling of being forgiven, the knowledge that you, your conscience does not have to condemn you. Forgiveness is to become a, and repentance, excuse me, is to become a way of life for the believer. The daily dying of self requires a daily acts of repentance as we continue to stumble and fall along the road of life. Paul shows us that maturity in Christ doesn't mean we're never going to sin, but we deal with our sin properly. And I just want to point out two things from Paul's repentance that we can model if we're going to do this well in our lives before God. His repentance is, first of all, immediate. I love that. I love how often do we be, are we confronted with the reality of our sin and we refuse to deal with it. We, we don't like the pressure. We want to justify ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to give in. Our pride wants us to save face. But here, Paul, the great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, cares nothing about saving face. He cares only about honoring God. And the moment his sin is pointed out to him, he responds immediately with repentance. 
by the way, I, I think Paul is speaking genuinely. I don't think he knew. I don't think Paul's lying to us here. He didn't know that this was the high priest. He didn't know that that's who he was speaking to at the moment. And it's, commentaries have all kinds of reasons why Paul didn't know. You know, it's amazing. I mean, page after page, maybe it was dark in there. Paul's eyesight was going. Uh, you know, they weren't wearing their typical garb. And it doesn't matter. The point is simply this. Listen, he didn't realize. But the moment it was pointing out, pointed out, he owns his sin. He says, my conscience needs to come in line with the word of God. The second thing I think that we can model, not only is that he is so quick, he's so quick to repent, he's so authentic in his repentance. He's so sincere, he's so genuine in his repentance. You know, and at the heart of it, can you just see this? He's not first and foremost upset that he's offended them. He's first and foremost upset that he has offended God. And you say, how do you know that? That's why he quotes the scriptures primarily, I believe. He's saying, listen, I know what God has said, and I know that my sin, as David said, is first and foremost against no man, but against God himself. And that breaks his heart. There's a sincerity that comes, listen, with knowing that your sin isn't just against the people around you that you've hurt. It is against God himself. And that ought to really cause us to want to repent immediately. And I, I think unlike David who prolonged his repentance, but listen, when confronted again with the truth, there is an authenticness, a brokenness, a sincerity. That's how we should respond to a biblically informed conscience like Paul's. Conscience must be cleansed, listen, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then our conscience must be rightly calibrated by the Word of God, and then our conscience must cause our lives to be conformed more and more to the Word of God. Now, just in case you're wondering how quickly this happens in the Christian life, you should just understand this. This will take a lifetime, but we have been given the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the Church of God to help us in this process of growing and maturing in Christ. I love that even when we sin, we can know the unwavering comfort of God. And one of the ways God allows us to know that comfort and that peace is by dealing with our sin immediately and authentically, providing for us a clear conscience. Secondly, notice this, I can know the unwavering comfort of God even when chaos surrounds me. Even when chaos surrounds me. At this point, Paul is beginning to suspect that he's not going to get a fair hearing. But he tries anyways, and verse 6 tells us now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He hones right in on the, the main issue at stake here. This is the primary reason I'm on trial, he says. And verse 7 says, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? A little bit of antagonism there, you get it? 
Verse 10 says, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Stop there. He knows the audience he's speaking to. He's looking around and he's realizing that really this conversation is going nowhere. They don't really care about him or preserving his life. They simply want him dead. They've made that abundantly clear. There's no room, no wiggle room here. So he blurts out that the primary reason he's actually on trial is this theological reason, this doctrinal reason. And he knows, by the way, that this is going to cause a little bit of dissension here. And some people think that this is maybe a bit of a tactic that Paul is employing to maybe kind of get the focus off of him, allow them to go at it and fight things out. You know, he can kind of, kind of back off and maybe be left alone. That's possible, I think the reality is Paul wants simply to make it abundantly clear what all the chaos is stemming from. And he wants again to point to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's essentially saying, don't you understand, I'm on trial because of my belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the things that I'm on trial for are the very things that some of you, you hold to, you believe in, and you understand that the scriptures actually speak about. The Sadducees accepted only a, a part of the scriptures. The, the Pharisees believed in, in the Torah, all of the Old Testament, all the books in the Old Testament being divinely inspired, given by God. The Sadducees believed only in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, being inspired by God. And so you can see where part of this problem stems from. It's an inaccurate understanding of God's revelation. It's, it's a partial understanding, and by the way, that's a great, just great principle in there. Listen, that when you, you only take part of the Bible, you're bound to miss out on some really important things. Okay? And here, the Pharisees, they, they don't understand the concept of the resurrection. They don't understand the concept of angels and the Spirit, because really the first five books of the Bible don't speak as much to those things, although there's, there's definitely some of those aspects in there. Regardless, the theology of the Sadducees had kind of morphed into this very strange doctrinal kind of this sect within the Jewish faith where they denied concepts like the resurrection, like the afterlife. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed both in the afterlife and the resurrection. They were hoping for the resurrection. They were longing for the resurrection. They understood that the Old Testament pointed to a future reality of a resurrection, their beliefs were far more compatible with Christianity than those of the Sadducees. It's interesting, when you think of the, the, the Sadducees and their religious convictions, they could not become a Christian without abandoning, really, the distinctive theological positions of the party they claimed to hold to. A Pharisee could far more easily become a follower of Jesus Christ than any Sadducee. And by the way, when you look through the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, we have accounts of Pharisees coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Nicodemus being one of them. There's other accounts as well of other Pharisees coming to faith in Christ. But there is never once the mention of a Sadducee coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This doctrinal position was such a stumbling block, it would appear, it prevented them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I was talking to a, a friend of mine this past week, another pastor, and, and, and he was meeting with a couple from, uh, who had been brought out to his church. They weren't believers, and, and they were hear, you know, kind of hearing the truth. The, the gentleman, the man had grown up in a Catholic background, but he kind of had walked away from the faith. And you're kind of denying the supernatural aspect. So as my friend sat and talked with this individual and, and kind of 
was asking him questions about what he believed. He said, you know, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, yeah, of course I believe in Jesus. You know, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't abandoned everything. And he said, well, okay, that's, that's great. That's a good start. He said, so do you believe Jesus was God? He said, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. So what do you think Jesus rose from the dead? He said, well, no, definitely not that. that like, that's... I mean, I think it's, it's more, you know, the moral of the story kind of an idea. It's not literal. It's not meant to be taken literal. What you need to understand here is that Paul is pointing to what is critically important to understanding the gospel and becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he points to the resurrection should tell us something very important about this crucial Christian doctrine. I was told the story... Uh, recently of a, an eight-year-old little girl uh, who may or may not be my daughter, and uh, depending on if you like this story, and uh, um, in class, she's grade three, um, you know, one of her classmates came in and was real excited to tell the class that she accepted Jesus into her heart, and to which my daughter put up her hand and replied, well, you know, becoming a Christian is not simply about asking Jesus into your heart. You actually have to believe the right things about Jesus. Pastor's kid, pray for her. <laughs> and she went on to talk about what you need to believe. I mean, you need to believe that Jesus is God. You need to believe that he came and he lived a perfect life. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he had to pay for your sins. You need to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. She said all this in front of her class. And to which her teacher said, yes, let's have a great discussion about the gospel. And can, I, can I just use that as an illustration? Like, look, we need to be presenting the right content for people to be saved. It is so imperative that people understand exactly who Jesus is, exactly what he has come to do, and exactly how he did it. And the resurrection is the capstone to it all. I mean, without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, we believe in a foolish, foolish story of a dead guy. But listen, here, here's what you have to understand. The connection to the hope that the, the Pharisees believed in, that Paul was presenting, it's connected to the reality that one day we will be raised from the dead. One day we will live life to the fullest. But for that to happen, someone had to come and not just pay for our sins, they actually had to come and deal with our greatest enemy. They had to conquer our greatest enemy. Jesus Christ had to put death to death. And the way we know he did that is that death could not hold him down. He rose victorious over the grave. Amen? Amen? That is the hope of the gospel. And because of that, we can be assured of this. Listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's not just the right content. You have to have the right heart. You have to come broken. Your pride has to be laid low before you. That's something that these Pharisees and Sadducees hadn't figured out yet. And then you have to come the right way. And that is only by faith in what Jesus has done. Only by faith, by trusting. And here, Paul says, essentially, the hope that we have of the resurrection is connected to Jesus Christ. That's what I've been teaching. That's what I've been preaching. And all of a sudden, chaos breaks out everywhere. This produces such a violent a backlash. All of a sudden, there's infighting taking place between these two sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul, at this moment, is at risk of being torn to pieces, the Word of God tells us. It is so violent. Things are so over the top that the Romans have to jump in there and actually rescue Paul before he's ripped limb from limb. This, by the way, is one of the darkest moments in Paul's life, I believe. I believe this is a heartbreaking moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. 
For years, listen, for years he had hoped to come to Jerusalem so that he might give a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. For years, we we probably can understand from Romans 9 to 11, that he longed for the Jews to embrace Jesus, to set aside their pride, and to, to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He longed so desperately for them. Instead, he arrives to find mass confusion in the church, all kinds of gossip about what he purports to be teaching regarding the law of Moses. His hopes of convincing the leaders of the Jewish community have quickly evaporated into thin air. His longing for effective ministry to the Jews and the Romans is beginning to fade as well before his very eyes. It seems that his faithful obedience to the Lord has not ended with mass conversion, but mass chaos. He is physically, emotionally, and spiritually tired. He's at one of those lows in life. You know those lows? You ever been at one of those lows? Just utterly depleted on every front. He's in the depths. He's humiliated. He's alone. He's dejected. He's dispirited. I think the chaos that surrounds him is really mimicking the chaos that's likely inside of him. You see, Ian, you're reading a little bit too much into this, I think. I mean, how do you know Paul is, is having these kind of feelings? How do you know this was such a tough time for Paul? How do you really know that Paul felt like this? Look at verse 11. I think this tells it all. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. Take heart, Paul. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That, that language in verse 11 is so striking. And many people believe, and I, I think the, it's, it's it really, we don't know definitively, but many people believe that this is literally saying that Jesus Christ came and stood beside Paul. Literally, I don't mean spiritually or figuratively or in his heart he felt close to Jesus. Literally, Jesus Christ shows up in Paul's time of need and desperation. I mean, his heart is discouraged. That's why Jesus comes and stands with him and looks him in the eyes and says, take heart, Paul, take courage. Oh, how the word, take courage, how the knowledge of Jesus standing beside him, standing with him, must have jump-started Paul's soul. Can you just imagine the life that would have been breathed back into his soul at this very moment? Every faculty of the Apostle Paul was engaged with Jesus and was energized by his presence in his life. Only Jesus, by the way, uses this word, take courage or take heart, is often translated. Only Jesus uses this word in the New Testament. And all five instances brought wonderful comfort every single time it is used. He called the bedridden paralytic in Matthew chapter chapter 9, to take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. To his frightened disciples, as he came to them across the storm-tossed sea of Galilee, walking across the water, he says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. In the upper room on the night of his crucifixion, In John chapter 16, he looks at his disciples and he says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. 
This is Christ's unique word for all who are trying to serve him. For all who are taking the stand for Jesus, this is his word to us. However feebly, however difficult the circumstances may be and the chaos that surrounds us, listen, the words that come from the mouth of Jesus, from the word of God to our hearts, is this, take heart. You know, as a general principle, I just think it's helpful for us to see that sometimes chaos provides the greatest opportunity for us to experience the comfort of God. Just think about that, just, just logically. If there is no chaos in our lives, if we never experience difficulties or pain, right, there is definitely no need to experience the comfort of God. And so God will often allow us to experience chaos so that we can know intimately and personally and deeply, listen, the comforting hand of God in our lives. If it was easy to be a follower of Christ, there would be no opportunity or need to experience the unwavering comfort of Christ. And Pastor Brian read it in our announcement time, but I I want us to just simply look together. Turn in your Bibles. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 23. Flip forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul himself lays out one of the most beautifully written passages in Scripture on the comfort of God and how God wants to use that in our lives. I want to read verse 3 in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Let's look at it together. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and you might want to circle this, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. There is a beautiful picture, you know, in the Christian life that when we experience chaos and affliction, pain, trials, circumstances that are outside of our control, oftentimes related to us following Jesus, but listen, extending outside of that as well, if there's chaos in your life, one of the things God wants you to know and experience is His comforting presence. When you experience the comforting presence of God, how true is this? Listen, so many people I talk to who are going through trials, who've gone, so many of you have gone through some incredible trials, some incredible affliction in your life. Some of you are going through it right now, and and part of you is asking, why? Why is this happening, Lord? I mean, what's going on? I mean, what use is this? And listen, God wants you to know, not only is this going to be useful for you, for your holiness, for your sanctification, we've talked about that in trials. Listen, the greatest usefulness will be you experiencing the comforting presence of God. You will know in your times of desperation and need, that there is a God who loves you and cares for you and comforts you. And when you've experienced that, one of the greatest gifts that God will give you is the privilege and the opportunity of coming alongside those who are struggling and suffering, maybe with some of the very same things that you've struggled through and suffered. Maybe God, just think right now, what has God allowed you to suffer? What kind of affliction? What kind of pain? What kind of trial? 
whether it be outside of your control or whether it be as a result of your own sin, what is it that you have suffered that God has comforted you in you know, through his presence, through his word, through his people, that now he's giving you the privilege of coming alongside others and saying, hey, hey, I've been there and I have experienced the comforting hand of God. His mercies are new to you this morning. Let me walk with you through the pain. Let me wrap my arms around you. Let me remind you of the truths of the God you serve and love. Taking the stand for Jesus isn't easy. But I can know the unwavering comfort of God. Listen, even when sin hounds me, even when chaos surrounds me, and lastly, even when life confounds me. Let's be honest for a minute. Life often confounds us, doesn't it? Life is so often confusing. Circumstances challenges. Sometimes on a daily basis, we find life so confusing. And This next section here, I just simply want to read it, and I want to draw out a few thoughts for you, but I just want you to see. Just follow along. It's a long section, so bear with me. And, and see verse 11 as the bridge into this section. It really is the, the linchpin of this section. Remember, God shows up and he says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I'm with you, Paul. Take heart. I'm not going to leave you. And here it is. And I'm going to get you exactly where I have called you to be. I'm going to take you there, Paul. You might not know how. You might not know when. You might not know what it's all going to look like. But let's just understand this, Paul. I'm going to get you there. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They are serious, right? They're fasting. This is how serious it is. This is how desperately they want to kill Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council... Give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So they want to set up an ambush and convince the tribune to bring him before them. They want to kill him along the way. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and he entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and he said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, and have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. 
This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged and nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul as also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. It's just really important to see in this section that God's way of protecting Paul is to put him in prison. I just want you to think about that for a second. God's way of protecting Paul and getting him where he wants him to be eventually in Rome to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually to put Paul in prison. You know, so often in our lives we're asking questions like this, why is this happening to me? How is this going to end? Is this ever going to end? God's ways are so often mysterious. We're so often confounded. But one of the things we can see as we look at, at the testimony of Scripture, it verifies this over, assures us of this over and over and over again. God's ways may be confounding to us, but they are always perfect. He always knows what He's doing. It's possible that what seems painful is actually God's protection in our lives. Think about that for a second. What may seem wrong may actually prove to be what's absolutely best. God will bring Paul to Rome for the purpose of testifying, uh, taking the stand quite literally for Jesus, but to get there, he must take him along a very unconventional path. Along this path, there will be a plot against his life, as we've seen, an unexpected informant in his own nephew getting the wind of this ambush, a carefully orchestrated escape and protection, legally sanctioned protection by the government itself. What I find so interesting flowing right out of verse 11, is that the comfort that Paul gets to experience isn't found in the detailed answers of how God is going to do it. It's found in the knowledge that God will do it. And we need to embrace this in our lives. Listen, our comfort should never be found, be found in God telling us all the details of how things are going to work out and why things are happening the way they are. Our, our comfort never comes from simply removing our problems as so often we think it will or through, it's always, by the way, excuse me, it's through our problems that we get to experience the greatest comfort of God. Because through our problems, He often gives us a glimpse that He is there with us. He's working all things according to the counsel of His will. He reminds us in this very kind and gracious way that He will never leave or forsake us. When we stand for Jesus, Jesus stands with us. It's often not in the supernatural proofs that we gain covering. We always want God, God, show me something divine, show me something supernatural, do something absolutely mind-blowing and amazing to prove God, to give me the comfort that I, I desperately long for. Oftentimes, the comfort that we receive is seeing the providential hand of God orchestrating everyday life. 
And he's saying, I've got this. I've got all the little details figured out, Ian. Watch how I move the pieces around and put them in the exact right places. You know, Paul, at the end of his life, would write a letter, 2 Timothy, and he would say these words. Listen, he says in chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that God, as the book of Revelation says, that Jesus Christ, that God in flesh is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end and he's planned everything in between. Paul knew that he would be under the sovereignty of God, the sovereign care and the providence of God until the day that he went to be home with Jesus. And that gave him such great comfort. And when nobody else stood by them, the thing that comforted his heart the most was that God stood with him. There is comfort in believing the sovereignty of God, especially in the most confounding of circumstances. You know, our families going through some challenges health-wise, and my, my sister-in-law, and I have permission to share this just so you know, my sister-in-law's been in the hospital, uh, she's been in for surgery, and then she had to go back in uh, for more surgery because something was really wrong, and she was in incredible amounts of pain. I was in the hospital on Thursday, and uh, you know, it's a hard thing to watch somebody suffer, isn't it? It's a hard thing to watch them suffer when you can do nothing about it. And, uh, and, and my, my brother and his wife have been such an example of what it means to suffer and to trust God. In, and, and I know many of you have as well, but they've served for me as a, such a sweet example of what it looks like to just trust God, even when, when things are confusing, even when they don't know the answers, even when they don't know why. And, and you know, that we get texts regularly from them, and, and especially from Jess. They're so sweet. She's just constantly testing, testing us scriptures and reminding us of God's grace and talking about how she's trusting God in this and that God's using this to strengthen her faith. And, and it's hard. It's painful. But man, is, are they ever leaning into God? And I could, I could read to you texts that would just be so fill your heart with so much hope and comfort. She sent a text uh, yesterday to our family, and, and uh, I'll just read a portion of it. A lot of it's personal. I'll just give you just a sense. She said, knowing that suffering is for a little while until we are with our king. She said, there's this quote from a widow, Brittany Price, a young widow, who lost her husband in the midst of the, the, the pain and the confusion of losing her husband, wrote this. She says, this, this, this quote from Brittany Price has reminded me of worship and praise due his name in all, and that's capitalized, that word all, in all circumstances. Here's the quote from Brittany Price. No matter what my circumstances, I had to choose to offer praise to the Lord based on who he was and who he has always been and not on my own feelings and thoughts. It is not automatic. It is a conscious choice to offer and yield to Christ our worship even through excruciating pain. You know, my sister-in-law, Jess, she closes her text to us saying, praying, my heart is yielded to him. You know, you can choose to look at your circumstances as a mistake or a problem, or you can trust his providence and plan 
and see them as an opportunity and a platform. You can see them as an opportunity to trust Him and to worship Him, and you can see them as a platform to proclaim Him and to praise Him. You know, I remember the days when my children were learning to swim, you know, barely able to move their arms in the water, although lots of splashing took place. I remember getting them into the pool, and they could barely talk through their weak, frail, terrified voices, clinging to me. The one concern as they looked at me, I still remember very vividly, Dad, don't let me go. Sometimes taking a stand for Jesus, sometimes life just in general can feel like we are left alone in the middle of the ocean in a raging storm. Like a child who can't yet swim, terrified of what's going on, crying out to God, don't let go, Dad. Take courage, church, and know that the unwavering comfort of God is ready for you. When we take the stand for Jesus, He'll never let us go. Father, we love You. We're thankful, Lord, that though we don't know the future, then we don't know a lot of the answers as to why things happen the way they do, that we have a Father that we can trust, a Father who knows the end from the beginning, a Father who loves to remind us that He is the God of all comfort. And Lord, I just I pray for those even in this room who are experiencing challenges, Lord, and trials of different kinds. And Father, maybe some even in this room for their stance for Jesus are, are suffering and being afflicted in, in different ways. Lord, I pray for them, especially this morning, that there would be a great sense of your comfort, your care, of your mercy, of your kindness to them. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your grace. Lord, I pray that there would be a sweet reminder for all of us in here, Lord, that as we live this Christian life, as we long and we strive to take a stand for Jesus, Lord, that our greatest comfort and our greatest hope is that you stand by us. You stand with us, Lord. You stand for us. And Lord, you will never let us go. Remind our hearts, Lord, of these truths. Stir them, Lord, so that we might see the life that you've given us as a great opportunity. Trials and all, Father, an opportunity to take a stand for Jesus, to proclaim his glory, his excellencies. We pray this, Lord, to the praise of the name of Jesus. Amen.